Welcome to the Bass Podcast. I'm very excited with today's guest. Um, I've only recently uh, become acquainted with Nigel Richards, but I'm very excited to be bringing him on today's podcast because of his background. He's a performer and lecturer. He's had an incredibly diverse background, um, being the Phantom on the West End, also touring with Tom Waits um, in a theatre piece called Black Rider, which he did for two years. He's also worked uh, many times at the proms as a soloist and he travels a lot with what he does as a performer. He also lectures at the University of West London and has worked for Arts Ed in the past. And so Nigel is going to have a lot of diverse background to bring to today's discussion. We're here in the midst of coronavirus. Welcome, Nigel. How are you going? Yeah, I'm great. I, I've realised I don't particularly like the human race, so I'm doing great. I was, <laughs> I'm sure I was a hermit in an earlier life, so I'm actually right. in this time, yeah. Okay, so you're not necessarily missing the usual going out. What about performing? Do you miss that? Um. Of course. Um, and someone asked me whether, um, you know, do you think there'll ever be a time when we forget how amazing theatre is? And I'm going, are we forgetting how amazing a hug is? I think it's the same thing. You know, I think we're just waiting for that time where we can just express ourselves much more. But uh, I'm yeah. reading books. I'm having a time of my life, really. Yeah. So actually, it was interesting when we, just before we started the podcast, you were saying that you've had a huge um, week this week teaching. So what have you been, and who have you been teaching? Right. So um, I've kind of clocked up um, over 50 hours this week. Um, I've just got off a lecture with the University of Rome and the University of Naples. um, And I'm really trying to get them serious about musical theatre as an art form. And I I figured that that is my main job in life, is to get people really serious about uh, an art form that is often denigrated in this this country. Um, And when you consider that actually the Italians uh, invented tap shoes back in the fourth century BC, yeah, with with the new, um, yeah, yeah, they they weren't in the habit of creating amphitheatres. They just put on sort of a platform and uh, people paid more to be on a box, uh, which is why we still have boxes in theatres now, and you pay more for being on a box. But actually, um, so there was no acoustics. So in order to hear the chorus tip-top across the, the stage, they would put little metal clips on their shoes. So in fact, the Italians created tap dancing in around, you know, third century BC. I love stories like that. I'm full of, I'm your phone a friend on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah, I've got lots of that stuff. For random um, miscellaneous stuff, yeah. I know. And um, uh, so, and also because uh, all my students at the University of West London, um, of course, don't get a showcase. So we've been, I've been spending two hours with each of my students, getting their pieces up, filming them so they can be loaded and sent off to casting directors and agents. It's uh, a very weird time for them. You know, of so, course, they want to get going. Yeah, you know. of course. So what are you noticing um during this lockdown period, like mentally, physically, um, emotionally, what are you noticing in the students in this kind of uncertain time? What are you focusing on? Well, what has been very clear and a little disturbing for me is when parents aren't supporting students, 
where they don't have a space in which they can sing or they're not allowed to sing at home in one case. And that's been uh, astonishing to see in a real eye owner. Um, we all need enablers in our lives. Mm -hmm. And if your parents aren't there to support you, then, oh my goodness, it's three times, four times as difficult. And I've got one student who's having to um, not film anything because her stepfather doesn't like to hear her singing in, in his house. And it's a terrible thing. And you can see that burden in her and her need um, but it's being squashed by um, someone who doesn't appreciate that she's on a journey. And I often say to my students on the first day, I don't care if you go into this profession or not, but I know that the skills that we teach in theatre make you more empathic, make you listen, um, make you in the now. And with, in all this time of mobile phones and stuff, which are great, you know, we're getting less, we're getting more away from the now moment and appreciating interaction, real interaction. And so in teaching theatre, I go, you, you've, you're performing in order that you remind us that um, we need to be in the now and that theatre is one of the few art forms that's happening and exchange in the now. And that's what's so extraordinary about it. Mm. So what kind of um, tips would you give a another teacher who's helping a student put their showcase reel together? Um, look, our job is as an enabler. Um, any tips? Is there anything with regard to the kind of repertoire or presentation? Yes. So for, for repertoire, um, just know that you don't have a supportive room that is going to support you on those big notes where, you know, you get them sometimes, but in a really great room, no one of those. Um, so really pick the golden area of your voice and don't expect the room to help you. Um, also, if you don't have sophisticated recording equipment, um, don't do something that really blows away your speakers. You don't want to be giving that top note and then blowing out, um, you know, a, a, a top G for a baritone or an A flat. You don't want to be doing that in a, um, uh, while you're filming on the phone. Um, yes, and also do, do things where you can actually use this screen as a kind of, if there's a song that you could use as a blog, if you're, if you're doing a cabaret song and you're trying to educate the audience, like Mr. Cellophane, you can then do it as a sort of blog of a lonely person singing to, you know, on, on the internet. So you can actually focus your energies in and make it camera specific rather than uh, performance specific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, no light behind you, um, otherwise your face gets blanked. Um, what else? Um, no, I think that's it. I think, yeah. So actually I had a very interesting question just recently from another teacher saying that she had a student who was currently putting together her audition videos for a performance school. I think she wants, to, yeah, I'm pretty sure she wants to go into musical theatre. And the teacher doesn't think that she's A, choosing the right repertoire and B, technically up to it. And she wasn't sure how to advise the student without totally pulling her apart. So I was curious to know what are schools looking for and what can a teacher advise a student if they don't feel like they're actually really up for the, you know, what 
the student thinks that they're trying to achieve, you know, if they're not really ready yet? Maybe, I mean, we, we see so many students um, coming in uh, and auditioning. We don't remember them from year to year. So even if you did a bad audition the previous year, we won't remember that. We'll be in the now with you going, who are you now? So maybe it's not so bad that they do the audition process and not get in. Right. Because actually that's, that's part of the, the glorious, you know, success and failures. So I would say support them. Say, um, you know, I'm very interested in how you get on. Um, do ask for feedback because many of the drama schools do. Um, and maybe it's just part of their learning process is to actually do the audition. And if they're not ready, then they'll learn their first great lesson, which is be prepared. You know, mm. I would encourage them to audition. Okay, well, that's great. Um, I shall pass that message on. Okay. So I'm curious to know, um, I know that your title is Head of Acting Through Song. And yes. I've actually didn't realise that there was such a position. And I think it's amazing. <laughs> I think I created it, so oh, don't did worry. You? Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> so can you explain um, your philosophy in um, this particular area? Okay. So um, we're naturally doing a thing that we don't normally do unless uh, we're an extremist, which is to sing and to tell stories through song. And, you know, we've all been... Well, hopefully we haven't. We've been on the tube where someone starts singing and you suddenly think, oh, God, there's a madman on the carriage. How can I move away? You know, because we do link singing to an, a heightened state and often to madness or um, um, uh, and, and invocation and all those things. So it's not normal behavior for us. So how do we make a performance of something that's authentic given the fact that we're using a form which is already not authentic to our everyday living. So how do we join those two things together and make something authentic? Um, and I love the fact that the way that I approach it is that the, the word for theatre um, comes from the, uh, an ancient Greek word called theatros, which is the place of seeing. Uh, in the sense of that you would go to see a play, but you would also go to understand the human condition. You know, oh, I see. But in my case, um, my sort of secret way of teaching is that um, you have to see it before you express it. Let me ask you a question, and you'll prove my point, okay? okay. So um, uh, if you're happy to share this, uh, any aches and pains at the moment? Uh, yes, in my shoulder okay then great um can you remember the first present you ever were given uh, for a birthday the first present i was ever given for a birthday um no i can't that's all right don't worry i mean um, i can remember presents but i don't remember the first one yeah that's fine um what's your favorite smell it's the frangipani Ah, oh, fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm immediately in Australia now with that smell. Um, uh, what's your favourite sound? Mm, the purring of a cat. Oh, nice. And where do you see yourself specifically in five years' time? Five years. Similar to where I am now, but further down the track and a little wealthier. <laughs> Great. Yes. 
So in all cases, you looked outside of yourself for the answer. And I've just covered every song you'll sing in the repertoire. Right. Even with your own aches and pains, you looked outside of yourself, recognised that it was in your shoulder, and then your hand went to the shoulder. Right. You didn't go there. So the secret of authenticity is to see it before you express it. And right. that's where all my work starts, is that theatre and authenticity is all just about seeing before you express. So what happens if someone's not... Because I know I'm very predominantly visual, you know, if I, mm. if you go through the VAK... But I've definitely worked with students who are very kinesthetic and they can't hear or see what it is that you're saying. Um, and until they've actually felt it or experienced it, they don't really understand the connection. Have you ever encountered students like that? Or maybe it's more difficult uh, in theatre. Yeah, um, I, I haven't actually. I know that some people are reticent because what they're doing is they're, they're giving up um, what we see is, as bad acting, where I'm trying to tell you um, that I'm feeling grief, rather than trying to see the person that you miss and you know that you'll miss doing certain things with. So I immediately see my mum and I go, why didn't I hug you more, mum? Mm. And therefore grief comes to me. So emotions are a byproduct of what you see as well. Mm. In fact, everything that you need as a performer is outside of you. Mm. Um, and uh, even uh, so, yeah. So that's the way that I teach, and I, I I will try and find something at least they that they have experience of seeing, even if they don't feel like they're they're feeling at the same time. Yeah, but no, I've not I've not met a student who was I, I found them reticent, but not unable. Right. Yeah, because I I mean I that's really my experience is from the point of view of teaching technically, the voice technically. and Ah, okay. Well, of course, you know, there are very few muscles of the voice that we can actually control. I mean, it's remarkable that we're all doing this on a bit of a wing and a prayer, really. Yeah. Um, but I'll often talk about images and the um, because there are so many um, um, nerve roots here um, that we have to sort of trick the brain into changing it. Um, changing resonance and things like that. I don't teach a still. Um, I teach, I was taught bel canto by a wonderful um, um, opera singer called Elizabeth Crook, who was a famous um, Madame Butterfly at Glyndebourne in the 50s, and then by Evelyn, Evelyn Tubb. Um, and they were both image people. So even for singing, you can see it. So I'll often do things like if, if someone needs to lower their larynx, um, then I'll, I'll often get them just to do that sort of return mountain thing of Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that their larynx is just underneath, softly underneath their hands. And as they push down, then they, their larynx lowers. There's also, you can tap there and you'll find that the, the larynx lowers. Yeah. And, and often I'll, I'll go, just tap here in order to get some resonance here. And you actually Yeah, absolutely. Or I'll say, you know, I think you need much more of a classical sound. So I, I want you to sing as if it's a cow, like a monk's cow, and sing out as if it's almost like the Velociraptor from Jurassic Park, you know, and that the sound is playing here mm. rather than, you know, through here. So, yeah, I use images all the time for the actual technique. Yeah, that's interesting. I tend to use functional things. 
like imitating a particular voice, you know, that in like Homer Simpson, like if you have to imitate uh-huh. Homer Simpson, you have to drop your larynx. Or yeah. you know, if you say, duh, you know, there's no way to do that without dropping the larynx. And often people know, I mean, we imitate all the time. One of my favourite singers, Alison Jair, who's astonishing, she can do it all. She just imitated Mm. sounds. And um, I often say, okay, what do you think? Do do a a clichéd opera singer sound. And suddenly they'll be engaging in all these things that you can't say, you know, keep the larynx low, do all this stuff. Mm. Um, Actually, it's quite useful for them to... um, uh, take the mickey out of other sounds you know yeah yeah and I, I actually say that to singing teachers as well when they're assessing a voice and they're trying to figure out what's going on I say well imitate the person and as soon as you yeah, start absolutely. imitating you go oh that's right oh that larynx is coming up or that larynx is coming down or I find tension here or my mouth is you know very small or yeah, I'm not one of those senior teachers who can actually hear it and then often recognise what is actually happening anatomically. But I go, oh, OK, I don't know what you're doing there, but OK, hold on. Oh, I see. Right. You're, you know, you're doing that. And OK, so um, what's been really wonderful in this exchange of, uh, of all these teachers um, is that um, I'll be using one thing, um, say, I saw, uh, saw a singing teacher going, okay, you've got to go from this sort of scream area, you know, when, you, when you're singing. Now, I've been teaching that slightly different. I've been teaching about the inverted K. That So if you do an inverted K, that's, so that's the not... Yeah, yeah, taking in breath. Yeah. That actually puts yeah. the tongue in exactly the right position. Yeah. Same so, with the start of a yawn. Yeah, absolutely. All that right. stuff, the yawn. Yeah. Yeah. So that tends to overextend for me. Does it? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that's what I found with the, the scream is that you tend to um, take be, too, be creating too much tension. But the inverted K works for me because it's just gentleness. Yeah. And it's also to do with breath as well and preparation. Right. Yeah. 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 And it is great um, having all these exchanges. So yeah. um, what, what have your challenges been? Had you been teaching online before lockdown or is this? Not at things? all. Right. So what have been the challenges for you and what's maybe surprisingly worked well? The, what is... What is wonderful is that now I can't depend on my ear because of um, Zoom and all the other things. They're not quite up to really hearing what is going on. So I have to call into the student more and go, does this feel safe? Where are you feeling that? It's much more of a dialogue for them to say how they're feeling to me rather than me making an assumption. So I think that's, and I'm going to take that into when we're physically in the room together again, because now I've got into the habit of going, do you feel anything? And when they don't, I go, that's exactly what you should be feeling. Nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's been good. It's frustrating. I can't play piano at the same time because of the delay. Yeah. And um, so they're, they're having to use backing tracks or I'm having to send them the music mm. um, in tracks. Um, but I've often used it as an advantage at university. I've just called in all my sort of, you know, Tony award-winning mates and they're giving like online chats to my students. That wouldn't have happened normally. Right. And, uh, yeah. And, free. Um, 
and they're free yeah absolutely I mean so, in the sense of like they're they're not busy or not working no absolutely yeah. absolutely and I'm I'm really happy to send a composer you know a hundred quid because you know these people are feeling it as much as we yeah. are yeah you know? so yeah so um, I want to delve a little bit into working. Um, I'm always interested in sort of the mental, physical and vocal health of a performer in the work situation. That's sort of coming from my performing arts medicine background. Mm. So I'm curious to know what were the challenges for you vocally, physically and mentally um, in the phantom role? Um, I was... I was your bog standard baritone, like Mozartian baritone up to an F, and um, Phantom goes up to an A. Right. And, and it's ridiculous. It has like 28 top A flats and then one A natural on the word and. Of course, that really important word, and. And you're suspended. You're suspended over the stage in a harness, expected to sing a top A. And um, I had a wonderful um, singing teacher, sadly no longer with us. And um, he actually taught me how to create space for the um, for all the um, Gs and A flats because I previously played stuff like Leporello and Figaro and all that stuff, and they don't require anywhere near going up that. It's sort of in the 70s where we started with the rock musical that we started to shift voices up. Mm. Um, and um, uh, so that was incredibly demanding. Um, I have to say it wasn't as bad as playing Quasimodo because, of course, the whole body is hunched over. Mm. And I remember coming back, I toured um, uh, China and Korea and, uh, and we opened in Paris and I came back and I have a wonderful masseur um, who was the masseur on Warhorse. And I walked in and I and he went, he just looked at me and went, Nige, what have you been doing? And I went down on the bed and he was like, okay, how many sessions can you afford? And I was like, oh, okay, it's that bad. All I had to do was just keep this free. But by that time, I was overcompensating. Yeah, just keep that long and free and create that space. And then as an actor, I had to keep on compromising what I wanted to do physically Mm. with keeping this open. And that ends on a top A flat. Mm. Um, And you've just climbed the wall. Uh, Literally, you've climbed the back of the set and then you sing, oh, my Esmeralda on a top A flat. Mm. And it was crazy. Well, the demands for musical theatre now, it's both dangerous and dangerous uh, vocally as well. Yeah. That's definitely something that I'm very aware of. I'm not sure because I don't come from the musical theatre background. So it's a bit harder for me to kind of get into that arena. But it's definitely an area I'd love to work in a bit more to just raise awareness and also to make the actors aware of what's reasonable not reasonable for their body in the long term and so they can at least open up discussions with the director and the choreographer and the you know the people who design the sets and and the the different props etc um because i know for instance when wicked first started in new york What's the name of the um, the role of the girl who's in the wheelchair? 
uh, Ro- um, Rosa, Ro- isn't it? Yeah, Rose. Yeah. And the girl who first played her ended up with the most horrendous back issues because they had built the wheelchair for aesthetic um, purposes rather than for ergonomic. And right. so she was wheeling, you know, working this wheelchair, which was um, totally ergonomically incorrect. Yeah. And, and had all sorts of bits and pieces on it that prevented her from moving her body correctly. And she's, of course, on a raked stage. And as a result of the, um, she ended up going, having to go to an orthopaedic surgeon in the end, a back doctor, and he basically came into the theatre and then just spoke with the people who designed the wheelchair and just said, you need to change this, this and this because this is dangerous. You know, this young girl has now got a very long-term issue um, because of this wheelchair that she's had to wheel around, you know, eight times a day, a week, over however long. And when I was in Warhorse, actually, that was another one which caused a lot of injury because of the way they built the horse. And nobody thought about the fact that people are in that position with, you know, I think that it's the movement, the mechanics of moving the legs that ended up causing a lot of injuries as well. Well, all of us in Martin Guerre, which was the third musical written by the people who wrote Name is Robert and Miss Saigon. When I was in the West End with that, we all had shin splints because we were doing this massive clog dance and striking the set um, that we all got shin splints. In Phantom, the one moment I would really have to like, because I don't like fun fairs and don't get me on one of those, you know, it's just it's not in me. Yeah, roller coasters. There is a gravity trap in Phantom where um, they literally, you have, you're wearing a, a mask and you can only see underneath between the mask and your nose and you have to hit a certain X on the stage and you nod to the stage management that, uh, although the audience thinks that you're nodding to Christine, you nod to the stage manager to go, you believe you're on the X and they literally release the struts of the stage underneath your uh, underneath this sort of um, seems like a postage stamp, and they literally—it's a gravity drop. You literally fall with your own body weight, and because you're falling, you fall forward. Mm. And there are two men to catch you from slamming your head into a brick wall. Yeah, and you fall uh, around ten feet. Wow. Yeah, and you, uh, it, it, yeah. It's it's ridiculous because, of course, that technology is 35 years old now. Yeah. Whereas now it will be a hydraulic and mm. you have a cushioned um, fall. But no, I think I think you landed on a, an old lorry, but you still land on a lorry wheel. You know, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I had to have my right leg reconstructed after I fell during, um, from the barricade in Les Miserables. And I was out of the show for 11 months. I had to have my right leg reconstructed. Mm. So I'd have been impressed. Yeah. Did you get still paid while you were out? Um, I I did. Um, They paid me for the full 11 months, and that's the first time I went to live with Native American Indians, was to try and – because someone offered me some uh, Reiki Mm. and – uh, she was at that point living with Native American Indians in Oregon. So that was the first time I went there. And then I got really 
fascinated by their singing tradition. Mm. So um, I kept on going back. So, so how has that informed you um, and how, as as a singer? Well, this is all going to get into a bit of a hokey territory now, isn't it, really? Because they <laughs> believed that um, that their singing tradition was that you sang through your ancestors, mm-hmm. that there was a, a prime a, 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 a primeval song, an everlasting song that came through you as in the now, but you're part of a huge um, channel of singers and the same song, song a song line like mm. in Aboriginal, you yeah. know, it's it's coming through you. Um, but uh, what I really loved about it was that there was no sense of the ego with the mm-hmm. singing. Yeah. It was coming through you, but wasn't from you. specifically because, yeah. Mm. And there was no sense of talent. There was no sense of, you know, you had a special gift. It was all about the service of uh, the singing. And I that's most informed me is... Um, and I found this with... Uh, with students who are only singing because of that. And I've said, if you're doing that, what happens when you don't work for two years? Mm. And that, and, and mentally that is not good for you to, to be singing in order to get praise because that says more about your need, your other needs as a person for validation. So get that sorted out. Because you don't sing for yourself, you sing for others. Mm. And I, I often say to my students, you know what? You're wonderfully talented, but you're not gifted. Because really, gifted people give their gift away. Mm. Um, there have been many performances I've seen where I go, well, you're an ex- that's an extraordinary voice, but it doesn't move me at all. Because what you've done is you've alienated me by saying, you have this voice, you don't let me show you how wonderful my mm. voice is. Mm. It's not about that. It's about showing human frailty, not showing human perfection. Yeah. So did it do anything to your voice coming from that point of view? Certainly there are still things that I, I keep, like there's a thing called embracing the sun, which is um, that uh, Native Americans and Native American Indians believe that the solar plexus, which is where we get it from, is actually um, is on a a, a pole uh, or a um, yes, a, a line of light coming straight from the source of all creation. Mm-hmm. And so often, I'm trying to get singers to open out this space as a heart area, but also I just give them. I say in Native American Indian culture. You know, you need to be embracing the sun. You need to open up here um, in order that the song starts to move this area here. I'll often get people um, to stroke here if they're doing a song which is about um, um, love or um, failure or something that is that they feel uh, they're not reaching. I'll get them to just stroke themselves because it seems to really get this alight this so um, in the middle of the chest area yeah yeah absolutely i find it works really well and it works for lowering in the larynx as well mm-hmm. so, but, yeah. but what about your voice how did that impact your voice going through this experience um i think that yes as i say i think that the the greatest gift it gave me was that i'm it's not about me Right. It's uh, it gave me um 
it moved me into a state of um, um, wanting to change others, not to show off my own abilities. Um, so it was a shift in ego completely mm. about being part of a great tradition um, and me being a vessel for it rather than me being chosen to have, you know, whatever I have. Um, it, it's something else that I talk to my students about is, um, you know, on the first day is the difference between being an amateur and being a professional is that the amateur will see, it has nothing to do with money because I've seen some amazing performances by amateurs and I've seen some terrible performances by people who shouldn't frankly be paid. Um, but, and I say, so it has nothing to do with money. What it has to do with is authenticity. It's the, the, the amateur seeks to please the audience or please grandma in the back row. Mm. But the professional seeks to tell the truth. Right. And that came from that time mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about acting through song. What are some tips that singing teachers uh, could use when they're working uh, with their student on repertoire? Okay, so here's the science bit, as Jennifer Aniston would say in her shampoo advert, um, <laughs> that uh, about how we perceive the world. So we have to mirror that because that's what happens in our real world. So there's two things happening when we, uh, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm telling you and you know all about this stuff, but there's this idea that um, there's the receiving brain and the experiencing brain. So I'm looking at you on this phone and then I'm processing it. So that's the now is you and me. And then I'm processing it as I know you to be kind. I like it when you smile. Um, I have this history with you. We met that way. I associate colors with you and textures and all that stuff because we cluster our relationships. So, you know, for Christmas, it's a Christmas tree, the snoring of my uncle, turkey, and the sound of music. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so we cluster memory, right? So I've got you clustered in a time of lockdown because I made you during lockdown with Stephen, who created this um, format um, of our teachers. Um, and so we've made associations. And so I'm seeing you, and then I have a relationship with it. So I go from now to what is my, and it's a defense mechanism. It's, you know, a monkey needed to see a snake and know that they were in trouble in order they could run away. Mm -hmm. So they remember that their relationship with red snakes is bad, but their relationship with green snakes is good because they can probably eat them or something, you know. So it's a defense mechanism. So what we need to do with our singers is to remind them, what are you seeing before you express it? And what is your relationship to it? So what am I seeing now? And how do I feel about it? An emotion will come. Um, the worst thing that singers do is, is force emotion. Mm. And um, I have this rather wonderful book, actually, because um, I've been teaching this morning. Um, and it was uh, a guide to actors on how to play emotion in 1900. And it's really quite extraordinary how actors were being taught to emote. I think my favorite one is, um, uh, let's see, I mean, they're all wonderful, with, with cartoons by Gerald Scarf, so they're even more extreme than they would be. Um, here's, here's Joy. So Joy is described in 1900 as, the voice rises and falls at random. 
smiling face with occasional exuberant clapping of hands, restlessness and rocking of the whole frame, as if impatient to be freedom with this pent-up feeling, you know. So you can't play emotion. Emotion is a byproduct of what you see. Right. So you laughed halfway through that. I received that and I felt better because I'd got a wonderful response from you. Yeah. So emotion is a byproduct of what you see, not what something that you can play. And often I find with singers, they want to feel, I know they want to feel, but they'll only feel truthfully if it's, if it's a response from something that they've seen. Um, so that, that would be my, my big thing. Stance is incredibly important when you're singing. And I often remind my students, have they ever played that game where they're on the tube and they try not to hang on to anything? You know, have you ever played that? Mm -hmm. And you try and get your centre so that you're not being pulled by the train, or if you are, then I you can I have to say it. normally, or the past experience of that game has been when I'm drunk, which is probably... <laughs> Not the best time to do it. But anyway, just saying. So I think you need to be in the same position to sing because the, the song will give you impulse and you'll need to act on it and take that impulse in your movement. But if you don't have a wide enough stance, you can't fulfil the impulse of where you need to move for the song. And even a gesture, um, you know, it has to come from what you're seeing. You know, so I would say a nice, um, even stance. I often do a little bit of meditation before I teach singing because it gets them present and it calls into their body because people don't realize that, you know, it's what is it? 28 percent of the voice is created here. The rest of it is in your body and in the room that you're in. Right. So actually, they I have to heard that. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, I, 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 so 28 percent is just at the vocal folds. Exactly. Right. And the rest is yeah. resonant. The rest, and, yeah. the, uh, I think it's 78%, is created by everything else. Yeah, yeah. That's just a buzz. That makes sense. So um, it, singing is holistic. And yes, we've all sung when we're tired. You have to breathe lower. You have to support. Support is everything. Well, um, I, oh, I just wanted to go back a little bit on, on. the meditation yeah. thing because... Um, not everybody. So one of the things for me is that when I meditate, I come I come away feeling very calm. How would that then um, be useful if I had to do something that was high energy or like I had to be angry or excited? Yeah, sure. So um, now be careful. We can't play anger and we can't play excited. We can only play that which makes us excited or that which we can only see that which makes me angry. And just wanted to just, say just it. Just so you know. I'm not a musical theatre or actor person, so I will probably say all the wrong things. I'm a no, jazz, no, no, I'm a jazz person, yes. No, because I think very much in the in the opera approach, it is to play emotions rather than to have the emotion. That's why Simon, people like Simon Kinneyside are extraordinary. And Placidia Domingo are extraordinary because they are just great, great actors. Mm. Um, and I love going to opera. Um, I'm often disappointed, but then I'm often disappointed in musicals and I'm often disappointed in plays, you know, but um, um, so, yes, no, fair point. So the meditation is just to get them landing in the room, just to get them to release whatever the journey was like, but they were late for the lesson. Okay. Yeah. And then for things like that, um, I will get them pushing against walls 
and the, the frustration, if it's a song about frustration, you're trying to push this wall away, or if it's a song about exercising a lover, like I don't want him, you push against the wall and you try and make the wall. So I'll often do a physical thing, um, and uh, if they're not, if their heart rate isn't the same, I will get them running on a spot um, in order to get that sensation of where their heartbeat would be and where their adrenaline would be. Mm. And then I go, okay, now sing, because okay. now you're ready. Yeah. yeah. So um, the meditation is just for them to forget what they've come in with and to start anew. Yeah. Okay. Cleanse the palate. Yeah. So what, what um, when you came into the profession, how old were you when you started working professionally? Um, uh, so I was, uh, my first job was when I was 21. And you'd been, you went to Guildhall, so you did training and things like that prior to that. Yeah, I trained as an actor, but mm. I'd sung classically with Elizabeth Crook and um, uh, Evelyn Tubb before me, and I got the grade eight and did all that stuff. Yeah. I only I only took up singing because I wanted to get a grade eight uh, so that I wouldn't have to do a history paper in the A level music. I, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> here you are making a career out of it. Here I am. So, what do you wish that you had been told by your teachers um, or taught about before you became a professional? What do you feel you kind of lacked uh, in understanding about it as a profession? that not only do you have to be a good artist, you have to be good at being an artist. That and that, yeah, we're living in a world of where we have to, there are so many of us in the profession that we have to create our own work. Mm. And the happiest I've ever been is not in the big shows, but in creating my own work. And I've got two one-man shows that I take around uh, the world um, I even got banned in Malaysia, which I'm rather proud about, because it was a, a because it was a piece about um, uh, it was a piece about religion and faith. Right. And of course, Malaysia is a melting pot of lots of different faiths. And um, um, so, create your own work um, is one thing, and. Um, Look after your own journey. You can't look after anyone else's journey. I mean, we do as teachers, but actually don't compare. Uh, it's, it's a redundant exercise comparing yourself to other people in your year who are maybe more famous. You know, all my year at Guildhall are like so famous now. It's crazy, you know. And I'm always the person in, a re in the first day of rehearsals. I'm the only person I've never heard of normally in a re on the first day of rehearsals, you know. So um, stop comparing yourself. Um, just look after your own journey and what is the, the greatest self you can be and what's the greatest service you can be. That's your only, that's your only concern. Not whether so-and-so is now being nominated for an Oscar or, you know, yeah. So how <laughs> it's hard. Learn, Yeah, I was going to say, how does someone learn that, especially when you're young and you've got all those kind of hormones searing around you and your brain hasn't quite formed and you know it's a bit hard to try and get a young person into that place don't you think um uh it is and then i tell them that you know there was a girl who left my year at drama school she went straight into a um a big drama it was the time of dolly the sheep 
so there was this huge drama about um, the. It was called the cloning of Joanna May. It was about the cloning of a woman because uh, cloning was the big thing. And um, Laura in my year got that playing opposite Brian Cox and Patricia Hodge, playing the lead in a TV series. And she suddenly, and we all thought, well, that's her done. And she didn't work afterwards. Mm. She actually left the profession. She went, I don't want to be in it. I've suddenly realized, you know, with all the fame and all those trappings and things. I love what Gandhi says about fame. Fame is the, the advantage of being known by those people who don't really know you. I, I love that. Yeah. That's fame cute. should not be, the fame and the applause, they're, mm. they're not why we do this. Mm. Um, we do this to hopefully um, prop up joy in bad times. Yeah. I, Meryl Streep says the reason why she did um, the reason why she did Mamma Mia was that you know sometimes joy needs a little help in the world, you know. Mm. Yeah. So I know you've travelled a bit uh, with work. What have you noticed with your voice? Does it travel well? Are there, or there's no you have to do. <laughs> yeah. So what's your no? Because we all love the free wine on a flight, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> So it's, I mean, not, it's not the altitude. No. It's the attitude, yeah. And, and the uh, yeah, it's, it's really hard. And also, I immediately fall asleep when I'm traveling. If I'm on a train, if I'm in a car, if I'm on a plane, I immediately fall asleep. And, of course, the larynx drops to um, my waist when I, when I'm, uh, when I fall asleep. So, uh, yeah, water, water, water everywhere. <laughs> And, um, you know, and, and this also leads on to, like, habits that I hate. You know, the singer who needs water every five minutes, it's not going to get to your vocal cords for another three hours, you know. It's going to go to your major organs first. And, you know, um, our, our larynx wasn't even originally built to sing. It was built to swallow. And uh, uh, so it's going to be the last one to receive the water that you're now drinking and hoping that will do any good, mm. you know. So, yeah, great, clear stuff, but how much water do you need, really, you know? Um, uh, yeah. Uh, proper warm-ups, proper warm mm -hmm. you know, I know I feel like a teacher saying that, but um, a, a warm-up and a warm-down if you've been singing up there in the gods, A-flats, you know, you can't suddenly expect to go out into a cold winter's night having done a, um, a performance of Phantom and uh, that with a high larynx. It just doesn't. Um, so good. what are your favourite warm downs then? Oh, it's the disappointed chihuahua. What I call Ooh. it, this disappointed. Please demonstrate. No. So this is the... <laughs> I call it a disappointed chihuahua. Love it, love it, love it. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just gently. And I, I tend to tap down here in order to just make sure that I'm getting back into um, a, a chest so resonance. Just at the top, been, of your, top of your yeah. yeah, this, I'm yeah. Saying, The reason why I'm saying these things to you, because you're demonstrating them beautifully, but there are people who are going to be listening to the audio, so they're going to go, where is he tapping? Oh, I see. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So just at the top of the sternum, just, sternum, yeah. yeah, and just humming. And, um, and then ginger is just the best thing. I mean, eight shows a week doing Les Miserables, Ginger tea gets me through a two-day show. Um, also, it's really good for phlegm. So when you're tired, you tend to create more phlegm. 
ginger tea, the best thing. Just really get a, a wad of ginger in your dressing room, mm. cut it up into big chunks, and then just pour some hot water over it, let it cool off a bit, and then, you know, then phlegm is not a problem. Mm. I think that ginger is an anti-inflammatory as well. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of things like ginger and garlic, uh, turmeric, uh, curcumin. You know, there's a lot of these what we call flavours or spices, you know, for food, yeah. which are actually, um, you know, if you look into the medicinal side of them, um, actually can really help the body and the voice. And ginger is one of those. Yeah, um, I wouldn't try, I wouldn't try, I tend to have to kiss, of course, in my show. So garlic is a kind of no-no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, what, what else did I want to ask you? Any other pet peeves other than obviously people drinking too much when they're on stage? Water? Um, well, audience behaviour is a huge pet peeve, but we're talking specifically about um, singing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the whole warm-up thing. You know, people who don't turn up for warm-ups, that drives me crazy. How can you be have a prepared body for what you're just about to go through for three hours or two mm. and a half hours? If your body isn't prepared, I mean, I will always try and do the same workout as the, the younger members of the cast. Sometimes kills me, um, especially if it's a dance show and I'm not a dancer at all. Um, but I will, there's also that thing of coming together as a company. And if people don't want to do that, that says to me that they a, don't feel um, that they want to fully engage in what the collaborative, the wonderful collaborative process of, of performances so warm-ups people who are late for warm-ups yeah mm. um all who don't do warm-ups at all in fact it got so bad in hamilton that um they were fined if they didn't turn up yeah they actually changed the rule in hamilton because so many of them weren't turning up well that's great that the production actually took that step because not all productions actually look after their performers that well no um no not at all not at all but um, they, they were concerned with the amount of people not turning up for one. And that's a huge show. Yeah. If you're chucking your voice well. around, especially doing rap. Mm. Yeah. So um, I was curious to know how you approach singing for the proms differently to preparing for, um, you know, a theatrical show. Um, no difference as far as process or technique. Um, it's just you have to be so prepared because adrenaline adrenaline is coursing through your bones. You know that this is going to go out on Boxing Day because it's the big John Wilson prom. You know that at least four million people will see you, um, see you either succeed or fail. And um, in fact, I had the worst. I had the worst time. I did um, sit down. You're rocking with the boat. Uh, with an 80-piece orchestra, John Wilson, and a 40 people in the choir. And I was just about to go on stage when I suddenly had the thought I could just walk away now. I could just get my coat and walk away. And it's the nearest I've got to walking out because mm -hmm. my nerves were so... Um, 
so present. And I thought there's no way because, of course, nerves choke the throat, your breath is high, all that stuff, anxiety. And then, then uh, you obviously went on stage, I'm assuming. I went on stage and I, and you know, it was, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, because I was fighting this huge, suddenly I, I got stage fright. In fact, I had a huge bout of stage fright about two years ago. I was working with Alan Aitbourne, the playwright, mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't remember his lines because he was directing and, and I'd done a speech of his to get into drama school when I was 19. Mm. So to work finally work with him felt mm. wonderful, but also the pressure of saying his lines, I couldn't remember them. And uh, so I had, and, and that informed um, me for about five months. I really lost my confidence in speaking. So look, really don't worry if anyone's going through this whole kind of panic attack thing, it does pass, just. Did you do about, anything specific to help you? Um, I did a lot of Tai Chi. Right. Um, because I remembered that, um, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh. Do you know his work? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm sure you did. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not, spe- I mean, I just spe- know of him and I've watched, you know, the odd. Um, yeah. I mean, he's, he's extraordinary. I saw him, um, uh, talking at St. James's on Piccadilly, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which I used to go to, uh, I can say religiously, but sort of non-religiously, um, every Monday. Regularly. Regularly. <laughs> and, um, he said, um, he said, the, the only thing we have but do not possess is the present moment. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, uh, and then he, he, the only thing we have but do not possess is the present moment. Okay. Yeah. And then he, uh, and it came about um, because he was talking about anxiety and fear and guilt and grief. And he said, you know, anxiety and grief are... Um, sorry, uh, grief and guilt are about living in the past Mm -hmm. and anxiety and fear about living in the future. Mm. And the only thing we have but do not possess is Mm. the present moment. Mm. So I was doing anything to become present and not not let the past come in. It's Mm. a, but it's, you know, it's a bumpy process Mm. and we all feel it. Mm. I have to say anxiety, uh, audition anxiety has, has, has grown the older I get. You know. Is that right? Yeah, it gets worse. Okay. Yeah. Because um, some people go the other direction. Oh, well, I wish I were one of those. Yeah, yeah. so they get older. As they get older, they go, well, an ambivalence. all those things and who cares, you know, what people think. Yeah, so it can go either way. But the thing about performance anxiety is it's very much... Um, based around your memory of a past experience. And, and of course, our brain is notorious for creating our own memories, you know. It's not the truth yeah. of actually what happened. And so you're actually not even remembering the actual incident or situation. You're just you're putting all these other things into it as well, emotions, yeah. memories, other people's memories. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's where the anxiety tends to come from. I've always loved the the title of Clive James's autobiography, which is Unreliable Memoirs, mm-hmm. because I think we do that all the all the time. Oh, yeah, glorious! I had a friend who totally remembered someone else's memory, 
And even because I was there and the other person was there and she she related this story to me once and she said, oh, I remember when this happened and I went, but you weren't there. And she said, yes, I was. What are you talking about? I was. And we rang up my the other friend and, and I said, you remember that thing that happened? And she goes, oh, my God, yes. And I said, were you there by yourself or was Janet with you? And uh, she goes, no, it's just me. And somehow my friend Janet had taken on this memory and had become her own. She acknowledged that given that both of us said that she wasn't there, that she mustn't have been there, but to this day she feels like she was there. How bizarre is that? Yeah. But that just shows you how tricky our brain is and that's why witnesses are totally unreliable because you know, they've done many, many psychological studies around that sort of thing, what people remember around a situation, and uh, it's nobody's ever reliable. There's a, there's a cartoon I love showing my students, which is two men standing either side. They're, one of them is at the top of the six, and the other man is at the bottom of the six. And the man at the top is going, it's a six. And the other man is going, no, it's a nine. You know, so, uh, you know, one man's sticks is another person's not mine, exactly. you know, and yeah. there's no such thing as the truth. Yeah. Well, that's what I always say is it's like there, there's three versions, isn't there? His version, her version, and, you know, what actually happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or whatever, you know, it's always their version, their version, and then actually what happened. Yeah, yeah. so would what um, I think we're going to, I, I mean, I want to, you know, talk to you for hours, but um, we we need to be cognizant of the fact that other people probably don't want to be listening for hours and hours of waffle. So um, I just wanted to leave the podcast with um, with some tips that you would give singing teachers to help bring out the best in performance from their students. What do you think are the things that really guide you when you're working with? your students who are trying to do the best they can given the experience they've had and the technical abilities they've currently got, what has helped you guide a student to bringing out their best as a performer? Um, Don't bring in the last student into this student's lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, You really have to freshen the palate with every new person. And that means that, you know, someone's smoky um, alto um, uh, is actually their true voice, you know, and that you can't expect them to be the, um, you know, the glorious alto. That is just in their, in their anatomy. So um, we have to keep on cleansing our palate, our ear and our taste as well. Because, you know, I love those, um, you know, classically trained musical theatre voices, you know, the the Howard Keels and, you know, they're glorious. But I can't, um, uh, I can't expect everyone to want the same thing. But it's about constantly reevaluate. Am I I adding my prejudice into what I perceive as a good voice Mm. rather than finding their true voice? And, you know... um, that's that's the most important thing is who do you need to be as a you know who with your student I asked them was like okay so who who 
who are you and how does your how do you connect with your voice and um so i'll have like one lesson where she just wants to sing adele numbers and that's fine that's absolutely cool because she loves that kind of well the, the sort of i do warn her against singing too many victim songs um I thought it was very interesting. I was researching a, a play that I wrote about Barbara Streisand, and the only the only interesting thing I could find out about it was a commission. So I wasn't particularly enamoured by the commission, but um, uh, was that she was the first um, singer who decided not to sing any songs where the woman is a victim or codependent. And I thought that was fascinating. That's why I called it "Never the Never the Victim." Um, I think that's the main thing. Don't bring any other prejudices in. Don't just because you've just had your favorite student in and you know they're doing everything you want and then you get the one who um isn't so perhaps naturally gifted. Just call into them and who who's the singer they need to be. Mm. That's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much, Nigel, for joining me today. I'm sure My pleasure. this has been fun. We'll we'll uh, catch up again in a while and see where you're at. I hope you survive the lockdown um, without going too crazy. I I'm secretly loving it, so don't yeah, worry. Yeah, but <laughs> you actually managed in that case to integrate back into society once the lockdown finishes. <laughs> I think that's the <laughs> that bigger you, problem. That you yeah. don't end up staying the hermit, yeah. Because yeah. we need you out here. Yeah, <laughs> okay. And, um, yeah, so thank you very much. And, uh, My pleasure. Yeah, bye. Bye. Do, 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 do.